All right. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12. Last time we were together, we covered ever so briefly the concepts of Luke 12 verses 54 to 59. Uh, I did officially preach them, but I said that we'd be coming back to them and really digging in uh, this week to the teaching on those particular verses. And that's pretty good that I I had planned to do that because I skipped a few, if you recall, on the slides last week. So uh, it would have been a bit harder to teach through them having skipped them. Um, in my notes. So that's a good thing. And uh, as we finished last week in Luke 12, it was the culmination of the warnings of Jesus regarding faithful and wise stewards who carefully serve the will of their master. And the reality that this manner of living is not intended, and this is what we talked about last week, this manner of living, serving the master, is not intended to reconcile us to the world around us, but actually has the unfortunate byproduct of dividing us to some degree from the world around us. So much so that it might divide us from family. It might divide us from friends. But what Jesus was telling us is that we need to be ready and willing to do that. That if following the master, following Christ, means losing some friends, means losing that intimacy and relationship with some family in the process, then that is an unfortunate but necessary byproduct of following the master. And then we were thankful to those of us who have close family who loves the Lord. What a blessing it is. When we can remain the, in those intimate relationships with family and friends because they too love the Lord. The natural reality of following Christ, however, is that we will be walking in the opposite direction of the world. Thinking the opposite way of the world. Desiring the opposite things of the world so that though we have friends and loved ones in the world, our deeper inherent loyalties must be to the principles of Christ and to his kingdom, even at the risk of dividing us from others. And this is the price of Christ. This is the cost of the gift which Jesus freely offers to all who will seek it. Every believer is compelled in their lives to count the cost. Something we'll talk about more in detail in Luke 14. But today I would like for us as believers to be renewed in a determination unto compassion, unto humility. Many weeks ago, I was talking with a man in the jail. We were talking about sin, and we were talking about people who commit sin. And he mentioned how he is tempted to hate sinful people. But then he remembers that it isn't them that's the problem. It's the sin that is in them that's the problem. And we had this discussion together, and as we did, we were both reminded that the sin which is in people, the sin which binds them, which which holds them captive, ought to well up in our hearts genuine love and compassion for the lost, not frustration and hatred for them. It is this that we call ourselves to remember this evening. To remember vigilant humility unto genuine compassion. We pick up in Luke chapter 12, beginning of verse 54. The Bible says, and he said also to the people, this is Jesus speaking, 
When ye see a cloud rise out of the west straightway, ye say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? We pick back up in Luke chapter 12, verses 54 um, uh, to 57, with Jesus' final words of rebuke to the people and specifically to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees. Remember, in Luke 12, Jesus has been flopping back and forth between speaking to his disciples and speaking to the broader people. And we've we've been seeing this back and forth and back and forth. And this last little bit is to the people. And he said also to the people. And he rebukes them for having so much insight into physical signs and manifestations of coming events, but so much blindness to spiritual signs and manifestations of coming events. That they can read the clouds, they can read the skies, they can know when weather is coming, but they can't understand the signs, the spiritual signs of the times. They can see clouds arising in the west and they say, up oh, because they're familiar with the trends of weather. Rain is coming. They can see, uh, they can feel the wind blow from a southerly direction, and because they're familiar with the trends of weather, they know immediately that it's getting hot. My wife and I do this. We look out at our lake. We've got a lake across the street, and we see which way the lake is moving, and we say, ah, this is telling us something. The lake is moving from north to south. There's a northern wind coming. It's probably going to start cooling down a little bit. The lake is blowing from south to north. Okay, we might be seeing a little bit more warmth coming on. Uh, The lake changes color. Sometimes it's a bright blue. Sometimes it's a dull blue. Sometimes it's a gray. It tells you things about the weather, and we can say, oh, it looks like some, some sort of weather event is happening because we're reading the signs of the lake. Uh, just this past week, uh, it's amazing how much fanfare there was about the eclipse on Monday, right? And this eclipse, there was so much fanfare about it, and people were telling us the exact times, and they knew what was coming, and 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 between uh, the astronomers and the mathematicians and everything, there was an incredible amount of accuracy to where people could enjoy it. Uh, I actually watched one YouTube video where they had calculated that at this particular place in Wyoming, not only would they see the eclipse, but the, the International Space Station would fly across the sun for just that... You know, an instantaneous amount of time at this particular moment, and they counted down five, four, three, two, one, and then you see this little thing go whoop across the sun, and there it was, and 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 it was there, and that was the space station. Wow, you know, they'd spent all of this time doing all of the calculations and all of the math to determine the exact point, uh, the exact latitude and longitude that they would be able to see the International Space Station go across the sun during the eclipse. Wow, we can discern a lot. Jesus says, you can discern so much about the physical world around you. Why is it that you can't see the obvious signs of the times as presented in the word of God about spiritual happenings? They can read the Old Testament. They can see trend after trend revealing how God works in this world, that God spoke through the prophets and how he did so, how God validates his message through signs and wonders, how God would fulfill prophecy, but they missed it. To this end, Jesus calls them hypocrites, actors playing a part, pretending to be something that they aren't, willing to trust the signs in the weather, but not the signs of the spiritual times, willing to judge what is clear in one area of life, but ignoring what is clear in another area of life. And why would they ignore What's clear in one area of life while accepting it in another? Why are they able to bank on 
their reading of the sky in order to determine weather for perhaps farming and crops and whatever else. But they're not willing to put their faith in the obvious spiritual signs of the times unto repentance and salvation. Well, the reason why is because of the human capacity for self-deception. Never underestimate the human capacity for self-deception. We can tolerate in ourselves hypocrisy far easier than we can tolerate in ourselves humility. May I say that again? We can tolerate in ourselves hypocrisy far easier than we can tolerate in ourselves humility. It's much easier for us to be hypocritical, to act one way, and uh, or to think one way, or say one thing, and, and do something differently than it is for us to humble ourselves and say, yes, we need to submit ourselves to the Scriptures. We're far more comfortable living in contradiction to ourselves, but living according to our rules, than we are living in consistency, but living according to God's rules. And this was the problem. This is what Jesus was telling them. And Jesus warns them against this hypocrisy, against this hypocritical blindness. And he does so through an illustration, a, a brief par- a parable. He says in verses 58 and 59, When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, to the judge, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge... And the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart thence, till thou hast paid the very last might. Jesus gives a little illustration meant to cause his listeners to think. He paints a scenario where you and your adversary are traveling to a judge. So you, there, you and someone else have a disagreement, and you, you take, you're, you are walking to the judge. By implication in this parable, you are guilty, and you know you're guilty. Maybe, kids, you've had an instance before where you and one of your siblings have had a little bit of a disagreement and and you know that you're in the right and you know they're in the wrong. And so you say, okay, well, let's go talk to mom about this. And they say, well, fine. And then as you start going, because they're trying to justify themselves, at some point they have some excuse to not go to mom, right? Maybe they have to go to the bathroom real quick or whatever it is. And they have some reason not to go to mom when they first were saying, yeah, well, let's go to mom. Because they know that they're in the wrong and they know when they get to mom, judgment will be done. Or dad, if the case may be, if dad's home. That's the idea here. Jesus says, if you're walking with your adversary to the judge, and you know you're in the wrong, it would behoove you to get things taken care of before you get to the judge, right? Reconcile with your adversary before you get to the judge, because you know what happens when you get to the judge. When you get to the judge, he's going to find you guilty, and he's going to throw you into the prison, and you're not going to get out until you've paid what you need to pay. And Jesus is telling them this. I'm right and you're wrong and you know it. And we're walking to the judge. And you had better reconcile with me before we get to the judge. Because once we get to the judge, time is up. No chance then. The judge is going to rule and I guarantee you he's going to rule in my favor. And when he rules in my favor, you are in deep trouble. So reconcile with me now. Stop the hypocrisy. Quit pretending and get on board. That's what Jesus is saying. Realize you're in the wrong and make it right with me before we get to the judge. A man's self-righteousness can either be exposed today and be forgiven, or his self-righteousness will be exposed on the day of judgment and he will be forever punished. He will not come out until he has paid the debt. And so it is that Jesus extends this warning to those who are listening, having chosen their culture, their customs, and their traditions above the truth. And so it is for us today.
that to whatever degree we operate in hypocrisy, to whatever degree we pretend like we're doing what God wants us to do, but we know in our hearts that we're actually opposing Him, to whatever degree uh, we, we are walking in such a way, whether it's, whether it's because you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and maybe you're playing the game, and maybe you know that you're not right with God, maybe you know that you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, but you're playing the game, and you say, well, everyone thinks it, well, that's fine, but on the day of judgment, you're not going to stand before pastor. You're not going to stand before husband or wife or father or mother or sibling. You're going to stand before God and he can't be fooled. Or maybe it's that you're living in some degree of carnality and you're living in contradiction to yourself and you're playing the game and nobody knows it. Everybody at church thinks you're fine and everybody in your family thinks that you're fine. It's a secret sin and nobody knows it. It's something in your heart and it doesn't, you don't even let it outside of your heart, but it's there and you know it and there's bitterness or there's envy or there's hatred or there's lust or there's covetousness and you've been living with it and whatever, it's fine because only you know about it except that it's not just you, right? There's a judge and you're going to stand before him and all things will be made known. So get it right now because if you get it right now, then it's forgiven, it's forsaken, it's under the blood. If you wait till that day, then the day will declare it. And the works will be judged. And this interaction leads us to chapter 13. Beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. We stay, the Bible says, in the same season. We don't exactly know all of what that means, what what, what the same season was, uh, uh, but, but perhaps it's the same season of ministry, perhaps it's the same season um, as far as the harvest or whatever the case may be, but it's the same general time. And some of those who were present told Jesus of a circumstance. The Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The idea here is that there was a group of Galileans who had been killed while engaging in sacrifices unto the Lord. This is, this is the idea there. That, they, that, that Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices, that Pilate had killed them. As such, we would assume that this sacrifice was probably taking place in Jerusalem because Pilate was there. Because that's where sacrifices were made and such. So uh, this would have been a a familiar account. That's why Luke doesn't qualify it very much. A familiar account to the people. A familiar account to to the readers. That there was some time where some set of Galileans had some issue with Pilate. And Pilate had them killed. Perhaps while they were giving sacrifices. Would have been a huge scandal in Jerusalem. If that were the case, right? For Pilate to kill people while they were in the temple grounds. While they were giving sacrifices. And the people present sought to link this event of the people dying to the end of chapter 12. Jesus warned the listeners to make peace with God before it was too late, and they were destroyed by God. And the people then link, it it would seem at some point, connect the judgment of God to this event with the Galileans who were destroyed by Pilate. In other words, they said, the Galileans must have been great sinners for God to allow Pilate to have killed them. And this gives us a little bit of insight into Jewish thinking. This is not unusual for Jewish thinking. To the Jew, events of misfortune were interpreted as signs of God's judgment. And by the way, many Christians perceive this too. That if bad things are happening in your life, it's because God's angry at you for some reason. So any man who is poor in Jewish culture was poor because he was a great sinner. So God had made him poor. Anyone who was sick was sick because he was a great sinner. And we have various insights into this throughout the Bible. The book of Job 
wrestles with this concept, doesn't it? As Job's miserable comforters are attempting to comfort him, but are telling him, look, our comfort to you is you need to get right with God because you're clearly a miserable, terrible, horrible sinner because you're going through suffering. Now, each of the men said this with the exception of the last discourse. Each of the men said this, but for reference, let's just consider the words of Bildad in Job 8. Job said this, or Bildad said this to Job. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, how long wilt thou speak these things? He's speaking to Job. And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment or doth the almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him and he have cast them away for their transgressions, if thou would seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, should now he... Uh, he, uh, surely now he would awake for thee and make thy habitation of thy, the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. Bildad says this, look, Job, your kids died because they're evil and they were clearly doing some horrible sins. That's why all nine of your children died. Look, Job, you are suffering right now. You're sick right now. You have boils from head to toe because you're some wicked man. And if you had sought to God betimes, that word meaning uh, um, um, regularly or consistently, if you had sought to God with all of your heart and you had repented of your ways, then God would restore you. Then this would stop. So clearly, Job, the reason why you're still in this is because you're a sinner. Now, we know that that's not true. We know that that's not the case. We know that God had allowed Satan to tempt Job to see if Job would curse God, to see if Job would 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 uh, offend God in his heart or with his mouth. But this was their perception of of, this, of Job's circumstances. Your your kids died because they were horrible, rotten sinners before God, and they were unrepentant, and so God killed them. That's why your servants died. That's why you lost all of your stuff, and that's why you're in this place today. You're in this scrape because you are a sinner. We might also understand this mindset among the Jewish people because, not, not, not just because of, um, their history, but because of the unique nature of their covenant with God through the law of Moses, right? When the nation received the law of Moses, they entered into a conditional covenant with God whereby their actions would dictate their condition. So God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And the curses were plagues, they were illness, they were barrenness, they were poverty, they were captivity. But the problem was that in the Old Testament law, these cursings were not promised to individuals who sinned. These cursings were promised on a national level. Nationally speaking, if you all are obeying me, then there will not be plagues in your land. Then there will not be barrenness, then there will not be unfruitfulness, then there will not be the things that I brought upon Egypt. It wasn't each individual person who receives a plague is there because they offended the law of Moses. It's nationally speaking, this is what will happen to the nation if your nation fails to follow God. And then the individuals within the nation, well, that's like any other sickness. It's just, it's what happens. Right? We might understand, however, why they believed what they believed when they had this mindset of the law. And as we enter into the New Testament... It's very clear that they still thought this way. John chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. And as Jesus, excuse me, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? The disciples saw a man blind from birth and they used this 
occasion to ask a theological question of Jesus. And no doubt this theological question had been a great point of debate for generations among Jewish rabbis and scholars. When a man is born blind or crippled or lame, is he paying for his own sin? Or is he paying for the sins of his parents? See, because in Ezekiel, the Bible says every man will bear his own sin. But what sin had he committed before he was born? Huh. This is a tough one. Notice they take for granted that it was sin that caused it. They don't even ask him, was it sin? That's not even on the table. They say, clearly somebody's sin caused this. So whose sin was it? And Jesus says, you missed it. Let's get deeper, more foundational. His response in verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither hath hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Jesus says it has nothing to do with their sin. Nothing to do with their sin. He was not born blind because of his sin. He was not born blind because of his parents' sin. He was born blind because the works of God are going to be done in him. Because this is how God created him. Because this is a part of life. That doesn't mean that God made sin, created sin, right? Man brought sin into the world. Sin is an unfortunate reality of, of the, the curse, and the curse was brought on by man's rebellion. But sin is a part of this world now. And God will and can use it for His glory. Now this is the same reasoning that Jesus and His apostles would often contend with. This is why in the book of James, James has to rebuke the church... The church is scattered abroad for favoring the rich over the poor. Because James is writing to a Jewish audience and they they naturally favored the rich over the poor in church. Why? Well, because the thinking among Jewish believers was if you're richer, that means you're godlier. So we're going to favor you. It wasn't like, you know, the, 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 the rich are favored in church today because... We want to build big buildings and we want to have nice websites and that means the church church needs money. And so you pander to the rich to get money and you don't offend the rich because then the people with money will leave. But that really wasn't it in the early church. The reason why the early church favored the rich was because they counted them godlier. And James says, wait a minute, think about this. Aren't the rich the ones who are persecuting you? Aren't the rich the ones that are doing you wrong? So why, why are you giving them more favor than the poor when in Christ there is no rich or poor? There is no male or female. There is no Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ. So the Jews were attempting to connect the death of these Galileans at the hands of Pilate to the judgment of God for their sin. Because God surely would have protected them if they were not sinful men. And Jesus could not let this stand. So notice what he says in verse 2. Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans? Because they suffered such things. Do you really think that the Gal- that these Galileans were somehow super sinners? Greater sinners than other Galileans because they suffered this death? Well, the answer, of course, was yes. That's exactly what they thought. That's exactly what they thought. And I don't even know if they would say yes in shame. I don't even know if that would have confused them. Yes, Jesus, that's what we think. They would likely have quite naturally said, of course, they were killed because of some great sin in their lives. That's why people get sick. That's why people die young. That's why people are born with problems. That's, that's what the Jews believed. Have you never read the Proverbs, Jesus? Right? The Proverbs say that if you do these things, you'll have long life and prosperity. And we've talked about that before, why that's not necessarily, it's a principle, right? Not a promise. But as with the Sermon on the Mount... Where Jesus would tell them, you have heard that it hath been said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery or love thy neighbor 
and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, and he corrects their understanding of the Old Testament law. He says such a thing here as well. He needs to correct an understanding. Verse 3. He says, I tell you, nay, this is not it. You missed it. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Jesus says, stop judging them as great sinners and comparing yourself to them and saying you're okay and they're not because they're dead and you're not. Because I tell you this, that except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. You're all sinners. You are no better just because you're alive and they're not. You are no better just because you are with me and they are not. And then Jesus gives a second example of another tragic event in their day. He says, or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Again, we know little of the details of this event, save that the tower was by the pool of Siloam, which was in Jerusalem, and it fell at some point, killing 18 people. No doubt it would have been a major event of the day. And again, there's no doubt that those who heard the terrible thing that happened said something to this effect. Wow, they must have been really great sinners to have had such a misfortune come upon them that the tower fell upon them and God did not protect them from that. And Jesus says, do you really think that they were sinners above all others in Jerusalem at the time and that's why the tower fell on them and not someone else? Then he says, you're missing it because you're sinners too. You're just as much a sinner as they are. You're no better just because you're alive and they're not. You're no better just because you're with me and they're not. And except you repent... Ye shall all likewise perish. The condition of eternal death is not meted out to men on the basis of our moral standing. The condition of eternal death is meted out unto all those regardless of your moral standing who do not, as Hebrews 6.1 says, repent of your dead works and put your faith in God. The self-righteous murderer will perish in his sin, but so will the self-righteous pastor. The self-righteous thief will perish in his sin, but so will the self-righteous deacon. The self-righteous sodomite will perish in his sin, but so will the self-righteous missionary. And unless a man repent of his dead works and place his faith in God, no matter how you live your lives, the end is destruction. And so once again, Jesus compels us to turn our hearts inward and upward rather than outward. To examine ourselves significantly above our examination of the deeds, thoughts, and intents of others. And Jesus will carry this theme over into a parable, which we read in verses 6 through 9. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon, and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. I love this parable. Think about what Jesus just warned about with the judge, and walking to the judge, and reconciling with, with your adversary before you get to the judge. 
We find in this parable a certain man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And this fig tree has grown, it's established, and for three years they give it time to produce figs. That's a reasonable amount of time for a fig tree to get established and then uh, to have it pollinate, cross-pollinate, and then to produce figs. But it bore no fruit. And so he looks at this fig tree and he says to his gardener, it's been three years, this this tree has produced no fruit for me, it is useless, it's doing nothing but eating up good nutrients out of the soil, it's wasting space, it's wasting nutrients, cut the thing down. But the gardener asks for some mercy for this tree. He says, will you give it a little bit more time? Let me do this, let me put a little bit of extra time into this tree. Let me dig around it. Let me dung around it. That would add more nutrients. That would give it a better chance. And let me just, let's give it one more season to grow. And if it doesn't grow then, then you can, then, then we'll cut it down. Now always remember that a parable is intended to teach one primary point. And everything else in the parable is intended to be supporting that point. It in and of itself, it might teach lessons, it might not teach lessons. All the periphery, it might have something interesting to say. It might actually represent something, such in the par- such as the parable of the, of the sower and the seeds. In that parable, it's almost more like an allegory, in that everything represents something, right? But not all parables are that way. And the difference between an allegory and a parable is that allegories are representative. It's intended to to take something, to represent it with something else, to teach us. It's intended to give us an earthly reality that helps us understand the spiritual nature behind it. Parables are intended to give us an earthly reality to teach us one central primary spiritual point. And don't miss this, because a lot of people take parables and they turn them into allegories, and then they go all over the place theologically, because now they're trying to explain every little bit of a parable. And this has to represent this, and this represents that, and next thing you know, we're going off all over the place in these parables, uh, creating spiritual truths and then trying to prove our theological dogmas through it. Well, this must mean this about God, because look at the parable, and look, God is represented by this, and and man is represented by that, But, but you're missing the point. Parables are intended to teach a single lesson, and everything that that's a part that that that's given in the parable is there to support to prop up the lesson. It may mean something or it may not. We talked about that with the uh, the Good Samaritan, right? The innkeeper and the the men that walked by, and if we try to allegorize it and make everybody someone, not only are we stretching theological truths. But we're going to miss the main point. And the main point is so clear because the question is, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives the parable, right? So the answer is, this is your neighbor. The Samaritan, the one, the one who, who hated you the most, is still your neighbor. So remember that with parables. That parables are preaching, are teaching one point, one primary truth. That is leading us to. And if you miss that primary truth, there may be other truths that you can teach and preach. Understand and grow from. But if you miss the primary truth, then you missed what Jesus was actually trying to tell you. So while we certainly could parallel some of these elements, the point is this. Right in line with what Jesus has been saying. In Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 59, Jesus told his listeners that they were hypocrites because they couldn't discern the times. They bore no fruit of belief. 
but that they were still as two men walking to the judge. They hadn't made it to the judge yet. May I, may I link that to this parable? They hadn't made it to the judge yet because the gardener said, let's give it a little more time. Let me dig around the fig tree of the hearts of the men that are listening and the women that are listening and let me dung it. Let me send my son to testify. And let's see then if the fig tree produces fruit. Don't worry about who the gardener is. Don't worry about who the master is. Don't worry about all of that. Now we can, we can, we can make those links. That's fine. But that's not the point. The point is this. Jesus says there's still some time, but time will run out. If you don't produce fruit, the fig tree will be cut down. The fig tree will be cut down. And this is the message of the parable. Anything else we draw from it would be outside its intended meaning. Might be profitable, might not be. But that would be the point. And as we continue in the text, we're going to see that this season of mercy idea remains at the forefront. Verses 10 through 13. I'm sorry, I'm missing some slides here. My clicker may not be working quite as well as it ought. Verses 10 through 13. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's still on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face toward Jerusalem. We know that from earlier passages of Scripture. And they're still allowing him to teach. They're still calling him a teacher. They're still calling him a rabbi. They're still allowing him to teach in the synagogues as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he sees this woman and the Bible says she has had a spirit of infirmity. Infirmity being a a malady, a problem of some sort for 18 years. Now, when we get to verse 16, we'll find that this is some sort of spiritual bondage. It's not just physical. There's something spiritual as well. And you'll see that when we get to verse 16. But there was at least some sort of supernatural element to this problem that she had. Whatever it was, however, it was a problem with her back. It was causing her to bow down so that she couldn't stand up properly. She couldn't raise herself up. Uh, It was perhaps twisting or bending her spine in some way. Likely had something to do with her spine. And Jesus sees her and the Bible says she has, he has compassion on her. And he calls to her and says, woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hand on her and she immediately was able to stand up straight. Can you imagine standing up straight after 18 years of stooping? What an incredible, tremendous thing that must have been for her. I mean, she she saw nothing but her feet for 18 years. And Jesus says, you are loosed. He lays his hand on her and she can stand up straight. What an incredible day that must have been for her. And so, as we would expect, she begins glorifying God. And as we would expect as well, all were not pleased. Verse 14. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The ruler of the synagogue is upset at the events at hand. And the text tells us that he answers Jesus' actions with indignation. And he doesn't speak back to Jesus and the disciples. He actually speaks to the people that are there. Uh, he's doing what, what we might call a little bit of damage control in his mind for the impressionable hearts of the people that are under his charge as the leader of the synagogue. 
I've had to do this before as pastor, right? Had someone guest speak, and the next week was a little bit of damage control. I've had to get up. Uh, thank God it's only been once where I've had to get up and, and preach a slight rebuttal sermon to what was uh, said the week before, a little bit perhaps at best clarifying um, a little bit of what was said. And, and that was his idea here. He's, he's now trying to do a little bit of damage control of what he perceived to be a big problem, theological problem with Jesus' actions. Of course, he's in the wrong here. He says there are six days that men ought to work. There are six days where, where men uh, ought to have the, the, the privilege of creating. And one day where men ought to rest. This woman ought to wait until the next day to be healed. Jesus ought to wait until the next day to heal. But not on the Sabbath day. So the idea here, in Jewish law... Healing on the Sabbath day would be considered an act of creation or of restoration. And according to the Jewish law, and there are hundreds of them for the Sabbath day, the act of restoration or creation is forbidden. So they can't kindle a fire. They can't. And we've talked about all of the the ways that they interpret that today. They can't start a car because that is causing cylinders to fire, which is causing fires, which is kindling a fire, which is an act of creation, which, so by proxy, it's, it's something you can't do on the Sabbath day. All of these rules that they have in place in order to keep themselves from breaching the general concept of the Sabbath. We've talked about that before. So this would have been against their interpretation of the Sabbath laws. Yes, God says in Micah 6, 6 through 8, that God is not pleased with thousands of ram or ten thousands of rivers of oil as much as he's pleased with a heart of justice, mercy, and humility. But they missed that. And we know for, we've known for chapters now that they've missed that, right? Because mercy can wait until tomorrow. Today's the Sabbath day. And in this, he had reflected again this reality that the Sabbath ruled over the Jewish people, right? Jesus said God created the Sabbath for man. He did not create man for the Sabbath. And they'd gotten that twisted. They were being driven by the Sabbath day rather than the Sabbath day being driven for their benefit. The Sabbath had become an anchor where God had designed it to be a a blessing. The Sabbath day had become a burden where God had designed it to be an empowerer to them. Humans are very good at taking that which God has given to us for our best good and binding ourselves to it in the most unreasonable ways. And so stripping from it any benefit or blessing and leaving only the burden in place. Be careful, parents. That you don't do this with your children. Be careful that in your zeal to create a home and an atmosphere of righteousness, you don't bind yourself to the burdens of God's expectations and leave the blessings behind. Be careful with that. We need to be careful with that as a church as well. That our expectations, that our traditions, that our standards don't have only a burden and leave the blessing behind. Because it's a temptation. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus answers. The Bible says, The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, here we are, hypocrites again. Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan, there it is in verse 16, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? What better day to be loosed from the bond of Satan than the day that God has given you to bless you and to give you rest? So he says, you're a hypocrite. 
You're a hypocrite because you'll take your ox or you'll take your donkey on the Sabbath day to water them so that they don't die because this is compassion. This is compassion on the Sabbath day. You're not going to leave your animals to starve and to thirst on the Sabbath day just because it's a day of rest. You're going to have compassion upon the animals that God has given you because this is showing honor to that which God has given you. This is compassion. You're not going to avoid that. And for you to say, I will take my donkey to be watered, but I will not allow this woman, this child of Abraham to be healed is hypocrisy. Why can't she receive a blessing on the Sabbath day if your donkey can? Why can't this woman receive a blessing on the Sabbath day if your ox can? This is hypocrisy. And then he applies. She's been bound for 18 years by Satan. She is here today on the Sabbath day. Today she's here. Is it wrong that I should lose her today from her bondage? Have I broken the spirit of God's law by blessing this woman on the Sabbath? A day of blessing from our Lord? Now we've spoken of Sabbath controversies already. We're not going to go through it all, all, all over again. In Luke 6, and you can listen to the sermon online. In Luke 6, Jesus and his disciples plucked corn on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus rebuked the leaders for their hypocrisy, saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. We've discussed the legalism of the Pharisees and the ways that we might as conservative believers impose the same hypocritical judgments on ourselves. We warned ourselves against that. That's not the purpose of our time together tonight. And while we see a mirroring of these events and concepts, this, I don't believe, is really the primary reason for it being told here. In this instance, I believe the point within our context... Luke 12, verses 54, going through Luke 13. Jesus saying, there's a time, there's a season. This is a time of mercy. The fig tree will be cut down if it doesn't bear fruit. When we get to the judge, there will be a judgment. So reconcile with your adversary before the judge. Within this context, that there's a season to demonstrate truth and we need to repent. We need to align ourselves with God in that season. And the end of this season is judgment. I believe Jesus' point here, the point of this being here is this. Jesus says, look, there's no moments to lose. Why should I wait till tomorrow to do what I can do today for God? There's not a moment to lose. There's not a moment to lose to repent of, uh, of the sin of unbelief and to get right with God and to salvation. There's not a moment to lose to begin bearing fruit. Young people, you're young. There's a lot of life ahead of you. There's not a moment to lose. Get busy serving the Lord. There's not a moment to lose. Don't wait until you become 25 or 30 to begin bearing the fruit of righteousness unto effectiveness in life and in ministry. Get busy. There's not a moment to lose. Jesus says, look, there's a time for blessing as well. And that time should not be hindered by some synthetic division. There's not a moment to lose. This woman needs to be healed. I'm here. She's here. Let's heal her. Our text today ends in verse 17, then we'll apply. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. And all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I love this because at the end of Luke 11, when Jesus was talking about these things, the Bible says that his adversaries began to argue with him. They dug down deeper and they started contending with him all the more. They put up the, the walls higher and they dug their feet and, and, and they, they dug in and they started pushing back harder. But that's not what happens here. What happens here is that Jesus' adversaries were ashamed for their thoughts and words. A good sign that they had not wholly hardened their hearts to his truth. We might even hold hope in our 
glorified imaginations, sanctified imaginations, that this event became a turning point in the life of the ruler of that synagogue. And that he found Christ's rebuke unto life and not unto death. The people were likewise encouraged by Jesus' sayings here. They rejoiced for the glorious things done by him and so glorified God along with the woman for the great things that Christ had done on that day. Now our thoughts today have focused on this one particular theme, a theme which I would like to highlight in our application together as well. Let me ask you a couple of questions in our application. Question number one, over whom are you superior? Over whom are you superior? This is not a trick question necessarily, but it's one of those questions designed to draw you into thought. We live in a divided world filled with all sorts of people. There are many bad people in this world. There are many angry people in this world. There are millions of people sitting in jails and prisons across these United States for offenses against themselves and others. You have neighbors making wrong choices. You have family members making wrong choices. And I'm here to remind you today, don't think for a moment that you're better than any of them. Don't think for a moment that you're better than any of them. We all make choices, and those choices define much of the circumstances within which we find ourselves. And sometimes the circumstances of others as well. Many of us can say without controversy that we have made better choices than other people. So you are where you are, and you may be experiencing some level of prosperity or or peace or joy or contentment because you've made better choices. We talk about that in our morning service regularly in Ecclesiastes, right? The choices that we have to make and that we can learn things the easy way or the hard way. There are many of us that have better standards of morality and decency and civility. And so outwardly speaking, we are in better shape than other people. Inwardly speaking, we're in better shape than other people. But what did Jesus say? That except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The successful family man with his house and his lawn and his cars and his charities and his community service and all of this is just as viable a candidate for the lake of fire as a serial killer. Because the line between heaven and hell is not drawn along the demarcations of morality and actions and intentions. On the authority of God's word, the line between heaven and hell is drawn along that line of belief. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You're either on Christ's side or you're not on Christ's side. And do you know what that means? The only difference between you and anybody else in the world is Jesus. It's His righteousness. Our sin is the great universal leveler. For if even one person outside of the Lamb of God who was slain for our sin was without sin, if any one of us could call ourselves a good person without Christ, then by the decree of God's justice, the rest of us would be without hope, wouldn't we? But praise God, Romans 11.32 tells us, God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Because every man is deemed by God a sinner. Because you and I have all fallen short of the glory of God through sinful choices that we have made. We are all concluded in unbelief. And because every man is a sinner and he's resting in unbelief, every man has the equal opportunity to be saved by the grace of God without our efforts. So that no matter how wrong our choices have been and no matter how far down the path of sin we've been taken, we can still... Be redeemed. 
So Paul would declare in the next verse, Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Thank God for the universal leveling of sin. Because that means God can universally offer mercy unto all. Not for your effort, but through that which Christ has done. And so we ask this question, over whom are you superior? And I hope the answer that you can genuinely say in your heart is that no one. Because that would be the right answer. But now let me ask you a quick follow-up question. And this one digs down to that next level. Over whom do you see yourself as superior? And this is more to the point. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, do you look at the homeless man at the unbeliever, at the angry man, at the confused man, and see them as morally bankrupt, and so say, I am at least better than they are. Have you, because you're now clean through the word which Jesus Christ has spoken unto you, become the judge in your hearts of the evil thoughts and actions of others? Psalm 124 is a special psalm to me. It says this, David writing, A song of degrees of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Now may Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. David declares here that every blessing that Israel had ever experienced was little more than the tangible evidence of the outworking of God's mercy in their life. May I connect this to you? To whatever degree you have found love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. To whatever degree you have identified the truths of this book and aligned yourself with them and so received the natural blessings therein. To whatever degree you've honored and obeyed your parents and so been blessed by God. To whatever degree you have honored and obeyed your authorities and so been blessed by God. To whatever degree you have kept yourself from idols and so been blessed by God. To whatever degree you have understood uh, financial, spiritual, emotional responsibility and so have been blessed by God. To that degree... It is not that you have done anything special. It is that you have found God's truths, aligned yourself with them, and then God has worked a work in you. To whatever degree you have found these things, remember this. It is not because you are intelligent. It's not because of your great abilities. It's not because of your beauty or because of your wealth. It is because of the undeserved goodness of God upon you. And if such goodness has been poured out upon you, Let us not use the blessings that God has given to you as an occasion to glory over others or to think yourself better than others. Because you're not. You're capable of sin just as they are. I sit across from those people in the jail and I can think of moments in my life, defining moments where God's grace had been shown unto me where I could say, if it had not been for the Lord, I'd be on the other side of this table. I could be there. 
the capacity of the human heart to do wrong is great. And just because you've grown up in church, if you've grown up in church, and just because you've had a moral life, if you've had a moral life, and just because you've made right choices, if you've made right choices, it is the grace of God that has kept you on this side and not that side. And let us not uh, take the grace of God and twist it to become a point of judgment for us to judge others and to see ourselves as better than them. Over whom are you superior? First question. The second question, and this, this is what, what we're, we're kind of leading through these questions. Second statement unto a question. God is in a season of mercy. Are you? Jesus healed on the Sabbath day, an event that was sandwiched between teaching that reminds us that he is in a season of mercy. Jesus is patiently waiting for all the fruit to be born, lest trees need to be cut down. Some trees have been. They've not borne fruit. They've died. They've gone into an eternity. There's an appointed unto man once to die after this, the judgment, and their time is, is finished. The season is over. But the season of mercy for us and for those who are still on this earth and living is, is now. It's still here. Until the day that Christ returns or he takes us home, his mercy is upon us. And if God was merciful and patient with us until we bore fruit, and if God is yet merciful and patient with us as we bear more fruit, can we not be merciful and patient with others? Desiring, begging, hoping, praying that they might bear more fruit? What if you are... Hmm. <laughs> may, may, may I give you an illustration which may not be pleasant, but just take it for what it is? What if you're the dung that Jesus Christ is putting around the fig tree right now? What if you are the thing that stands between that person who is on their way to hell or who is walking in rebellion against God or who is a carnal believer? What if you are the thing that God is sending into their life to give them the final chance before he cuts down that fig tree? What if your compassion and your love and your patience with someone else is God's final effort of reaching out to them? Before the fig trees cut down. Can we not be merciful? Seeking of the Lord to bear fruit. Whether we speak of the immature believer who needs discipleship and growth. Whether we speak of unbelievers who don't understand the darkness within which they are walking. Can we remember the mercy for which we are remembered of God? Jesus decried the Pharisees as hypocrites. He turned over tables of the money changers. He warned of coming judgment. But on the cross, after all of those things, he still looked at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. People are sinners. Sin is destructive. And because of that, people do terrible things. People say terrible things. But this is cause in us for compassion not for rejection. This is cause for our love, not for our hatred. This was the example of our Lord, which we are caused to follow. Were these not his very words in Luke chapter 6? It's been a while since we studied Luke 6, verses 27 to 36. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, pray for them which despitefully use you, and unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, turn Offer also the other, and unto him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as ye would that men should do to you, 
do ye also to them likewise. For if ye love them which love you, what thank have ye? For sinners also love those that love them. And if ye do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if ye lend to them of whom ye have hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be children of the highest. You'll be like God. What a statement. What a promise. What an opportunity to act like God. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. And when the reality of our sinfulness and our unworthiness collides with the mercy of God, first in our own lives and then in our own perspective of others, we are compelled not to reject, to hate, or to judge unbelievers around us, but rather to reach out to them in compassion And to echo the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Does the humility and urgency of these words resonate in your heart this evening? If so, then you will realize third and finally, folks, there's not a moment to lose. There's not a moment to lose. Why should Jesus withhold mercy from the woman on the Sabbath when he's there, she's there, and she needs healing? Why wait to deliver this woman from her bondage when it could be done today? If it can be done today, should it not be done today? The plea then to the unbeliever is simply this. Should not today be the day of salvation? Should not today be the day that you bear the fruit of salvation lest your tree be cut down? Why wait until tomorrow? Why wait? Why risk eternity? Why risk that you could leave here and be hit by a car or leave here and have some sort of medical episode? Why risk the potential of you walking into eternity tonight of your, your fig tree being cut down tonight when you could bear fruit right now? Reconcile with Christ today while you're still walking toward the judge, lest you get to the judge and he find you guilty. And the plea to the believer is this. Should not today be the day where you bear the fruit of righteousness? Should it not be the day that you proclaim truth to others? Should it not be the day that you live out that truth in your life? Some plant, some water, some harvest, but God giveth the increase, Paul said. Are you a part of that process in the lives of others? Are you planting, watering, or harvesting? Are you seeking the souls of the lost? Are you living out righteousness? Are are you living what you know to be true from the word of God? Are you walking in humility with your God? Are you living in justice and judgment? Or do you have that closet in your life? And you say, yep, I'll get it cleaned up one day. So the fig tree is not bearing fruit as it could. Well... Let's clear out the dead wood and let's begin to bear the fruit. This is our charge. Vigilant humility unto genuine compassion. If you are no better than anyone else, then the only thing in you worth anything is what Jesus Christ has done in you. If there are others you interact with with whom you do not share your redemption, know this. 
at least they share your humanity. Can we not have compassion on them? Can we not see the urgency in our own lives and in the lives of others to bear the fruit of genuine repentance, not just unto eternal life, but unto a life well lived for Christ? Let's close in prayer.